Podcast ain't played nobody. Quarantine special from your boys, Alex Kirshner. Who joins us today? Today we have with us our, our dear friend and our colleague Matt Brown, uh, the purveyor of the fantastic Extra Points newsletter, which you should which you should subscribe to, uh, and also a, a longtime uh, friend of ours in the SB Nation Cinematic Universe. Matt, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me back, guys. Very, it's it's good to be back. Very on. much yeah. a friend of the show. Yeah, it's it's good to be back. It's a little weird to be doing that under kind of apocalyptic uh, circumstances, but happy to be here nonetheless. Uh, Matt, we'll get right into it. Obviously, uh, we can dispense with the pleasantries about how everyone should be staying inside, and if you can, and and you know, taking every precaution to uh, look out for the people around you, which you know we're, we're all doing, and we're all worried about that. Um, with those disclaimers uh, that I feel like we have to put in front of any time we talk about sports right now. Um, these have been somewhat apocalyptic, apocalyptic times for a while for higher education uh, for a few reasons. I know, I, you know whether that's population declines or, or uh, a lack of international students or a lot of debt. Um, something that we've been thinking about a lot is the way that the coronavirus is going to affect college sports. But I know that you think that to understand that downstream impact, we have to first understand the state of play for colleges in general before the coronavirus pandemic even began. Can you explain where you think American universities are right now financially and, and what these challenges have been? Yeah, uh, I, I think it's a very good point, right? Before we can really dig really deeply into what the financial implications, not just to you know, higher ed broadly, but to college athletics specifically, yeah, we, we should talk a little bit about what's going on right now. And the, the phrase I've been using a lot on extra points when talking about this on Twitter is is that this industry is facing strong headwinds right now. You know, one of those is enrollment across the country at you know regular four year institutions has been declining for several years. Part of that is because the American birth rate has fallen and we're not producing the same number of college bound high school students as as we were a couple of years ago. And when many schools, particularly schools in the Big Ten, particularly SEC, Pac-12, SEC schools, these kind of large state flagship research institutions, some of those have tried to plug that gap by heavily recruiting international students. When you bring in kids from South Korea or from China or India, or the Middle East or from Europe or anywhere, they're more likely to pay full tuition. So that guy that's coming from South Korea who's paying the you know $45,000 a year makes it a little bit easier than for you to offer discounted tuition for somebody downstate. Uh, or, or somebody you know, a, a little bit more local, but both for political reasons and for financial reasons and just a couple other circumstances, it's becoming more difficult, more competitive, and less financially lucrative to go after some of those students. You know, this was a big reason the Pac-12 made China such a focal part of their entire everything strategy. It wasn't because they were trying necessarily to get a bunch of kids in China to buy UCLA jerseys. They're hoping to get a bunch of kids in China to go to UCLA. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned birth rate uh, because that's going to climb in like nine months. I wonder why. <laughs> so, Alex, please go ahead. So, Matt, am I to understand then that you think that higher education in general is uh, maybe uniquely vulnerable right now to the kind of earthquake that we are going to sustain economically everywhere because yeah. of these these problems that you've mentioned? I mean, I don't think every school shares the same amount of risk exposure. I think Generally speaking, this is a scary time for higher ed. Is Harvard still going to be there? Like, yeah. If you have an $11 billion endowment, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like, I, I think right. you're, I think you're going to be okay. But if you're like a smaller, more expensive liberal arts school, especially in the Northeast or especially in the Midwest, where population is moving away from, and you're charging Ivy League prices, and you're not the Ivy League, like, yeah, I, I, I would be worried. If you're a school that doesn't have a big endowment or that, that really depends a lot on tuition or a lot on state support, I would be worried. And and actually, while there aren't a ton of schools within FBS that, that fit that distinction, there's a decent amount of those who are FCS schools that do, and there's a lot in Division One that, that, that I think are particularly vulnerable. And that really dovetails into this huge earthquake that we're experiencing because now a lot of those schools that were already you know a little bit in precarious positions – are about to take a, a major cash flow hit. And the first of those hits, obviously, is March Madness being canceled. Uh, you know, the NCAA tournament is worth to the NCAA itself about a billion dollars a year at this point. It's a massive windfall. 
that makes up the vast, vast majority of the money that the NCAA distributes to schools nationwide. Uh, so we know that that billion is gone. Now, USA Today reported on Tuesday night uh, that they're expecting that the insurance coverage for that giant loss um, is going to be maybe somewhere in like the $250, $275 million range. Uh, better than nothing, but not even close to recouping uh, what the NCAA and kind of by filtration, its schools are going to lose on this. The thing that I'm wondering about uh, off the top, and, and this is before we get to any other sports and any other revenue streams that schools might have, is how badly is this going to hurt and who is it going to hurt uh, given that NCAA distributions next year seem guaranteed to be not just smaller, but significantly smaller, you know, a fraction of what they've been. Yeah. So it, it's going to hurt everybody, but it's going to hurt some schools way more than other schools. And I actually just wrote a story about this for SBNation.com. So you, you look at Division One, and we have some schools, you know, the ones that, that you and I and Richard, you know, grew up rooting for and, and watch a lot, your Big Tens, your SEC schools. These are schools that have enormous television broadcasting agreements for, for, primarily for football, right? Big Ten's distributing $50 million a year. SEC is going to be doing that. And then some thanks to the, this new ESPN deal. So losing out on the NCAA tournament money when your entire athletic department budget is over $100 million isn't that big of a deal. Right. And we're talking on NCAA tournament money. It obviously varies and it varies a bit depending on how well you do in that tournament. But my understanding from from looking at some documents, um, actually pertaining to my alma mater at Maryland that I just looked up because I had them, it's a couple hundred thousand to a couple million, like seven figure type million um, for most schools in like the Power Five high Division One range. Is that correct to say? It's well, it's it's uh, the value of an NCAA tournament unit is about three hundred thousand. But right. but you know if you're in the ACC and your conference makes ten units and you're getting paid out. Not just for this year, but for last year and the year before that, because the, the tournament units go on for six years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you're in the ACC or the Big Ten, you're making four, maybe five million dollars a year from these distributions. So that's not nothing, you know. That that's a that that's a mediocre head coach right there in the SEC. But it's not it's not catastrophic if you lose that. The problem, though, is that not every conference in Division One has an enormous television deal. Like right? everybody in FBS is getting some kind of television revenue. And we go, we go a little bit below there. A couple of FCS leagues and a, a couple of leagues that don't sponsor football get some revenue. The, the Big East has a television deal. The West Coast Conference makes a little bit. I think the, Atlant- the Atlantic 10, I think, gets uh, you know a little bit. But the value of those, now we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars rather than tens of millions. And then you still have half a Division One that gets nothing or almost nothing. There is no lucrative Patriot League TV deal. So when you're looking at what's the money the Patriot League's getting, knowing you're not getting a bunch of ticket sales or anything, that money is what's coming from the NCAA. And that's especially a big deal this year because there were a bunch of mid-major teams that looked like they were going to make big runs. You know, Dayton could have been an Elite Eight or more team. That's four or five, maybe more units that go the entire Atlantic 10. So if you're Fordham, if you're George Washington, if you're uh, UMass, I think, you needed that money. And I, I think that is particularly dangerous at the bottom end of Division One. If you are a uh, poor HBCU, you know, Bethune-Cookman struggling to keep the doors open of their school right now. Chicago State is struggling to keep the doors open on their school. A lot of the MEAC is, is struggling at, at this point right now. It's part of why NCA&T just left. Um, then losing 300 or 400 grand is a big deal. If your total athletic revenues are less than $5 million, which is true for – a fair amount of these schools, that's a big loss. Um, it's possible the NCAA could still bail them out. You know, the NCAA could borrow money against a future year of earnings from CBS to give people the amount of money that they had projected. It's possible that some of these conferences could take out loans and, and, and try to ease over that distribution. But looking at this right now, for some smaller schools, before we look at anything else, just at the NCAA tournament revenue, that's a, that's a serious haircut. Matt, I, I want to I want to kind of very clearly explain what we're talking about when we talk about NCAA units. And and we're gonna do some explaining like we're five here just to kind of help some people out. Um the tournament disperses you correct me if I'm wrong, but the tournament disperses revenue per team that gets in from your league, your conference, and per round they advance. 
So like if you so like uh, let's say the ACC has ten teams get in the tournament and four of them kind of advance through you know the the second and the third weekends etc. Uh, that money gets dispersed and and you're saying a unit is three hundred thousand so it's three hundred thousand per win and that gets that money gets pooled and dispersed throughout a conference over six years. Correct. So a, a unit is actually then about one point six million and you get about three hundred grand a year every year for six years and most leagues will spread that money out equally. Not every league does you know but most most of them do. So yeah, for the ACC typical year you're looking at ten eleven units. That gets spread out to everybody, and that's how every school is getting four to five million dollars a year. If you're in a one big league, if you're a school in the Big West, you're probably just getting that one unit. So when that gets pulled across the entire conference, you're making two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars, and that's part of why a team like Loyola Chicago suddenly making a gigantic run is an enormous deal to that league because then suddenly you're budgeting on getting one unit and now suddenly you get four or five units. That's a several hundred thousand dollar windfall annually for everybody else in that league. That helps people hire better coaches. That helps people pay for their facility improvements. Um, It's a huge deal. There's so much riding on just this one tournament. Got it. And like, so the NCAA basically budgets, you know, if you don't know, the NCAA basically expects Roughly nine hundred to a billion, nine hundred million to a billion dollars every year from CBS and Turner for the NCAA tournament. Um, there is some insurance coverage to cover the loss of the tournament, but it's only like a third of that. I think it's roughly three hundred billion dollars, from what I'm read. Uh, read is what the NCAA is expecting this insurance policy to kind of cover as far as the gap for this nine hundred that they may be missing out on. But the other thing I have is is. So there's going to be that money to help a little bit. But as far as offsetting this, Louisville's athletic director, Vince Tyra, said something pretty interesting. Um, he said that he was like, look, he thinks the savings, he actually thinks the savings from not playing the spring sports will outweigh, he says, any of the missed money distributed. I don't know how much I believe that. But like, how much can these schools end up offsetting by the fact that they're not playing, unfortunately, that they're not playing baseball, gymnastics, softball, those sports? sports and, and those travel costs and meal costs and stuff like that. You know, that's, that's a good question. And if anybody else is saying that, I haven't read it. I saw that Michigan State's athletic director was saying earlier today, and you know, this is Wednesday, that he sees some schools having to drop sports. You know, not drop out of Division One necessarily, but pretty significantly cut costs. Because even if you aren't um, playing the sport, you're still paying all the coaches. You're still paying all the trainers. You're still paying all the recruiting personnel. You still have the scholarship costs of the players on your books. And you know we can talk about whether the scholarship costs are an appropriate accounting you know rule or not. But that's 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 still on there. Um, so you're not saving that much. And then what you are, you know, but you're it's true. You're not flying around as much. You're you're not doing in-person recruiting. You're also not selling tickets for any of those spring sports. And for you know for some of these smaller southern schools. Baseball tickets are a real thing. Like if you're Southern Miss and you're and you're bringing or ECU and you're bringing two thousand people to the ballpark, three thousand people to the ballpark, that's real money. If you're selling beer at the ballpark for Tulane, that's real money that 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 you're missing. I I I would be skeptical for many schools that the offset from spring sports savings will be able to help too much. The other thing that I want to make sure that we draw attention to here, and, and this might be getting a little bit in the weeds, is that we're taking a pretty narrow view. Of, go all the way, baby. Of, go all the way yeah. into them. We're, we're getting real narrow for looking at this and just saying the only thing you're losing is that NCAA tournament <laughs> dispersal money, right? So most of these schools, not just at the bottom end of D1 for basketball, but honestly in the MAC, in the Sun Belt, half of the Mountain West, kind of, kind of your to 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 borrow a phrase from our, our friend, you know, the ass end of, of FBS, right? A lot of these schools are have most of their athletic budgets from. Um, institutional payouts, whether that's student fees, whether that's just little checks from central administration, um, whether that's state support, stuff that's not coming from their own revenues that they're not earning from. And that's I, and that is a very that's a very class of the NCAA conversation, because like I, like Florida, like Florida pays that back to the school. Yep. So it's it is very, you know, different. Yeah. The, the, the rich schools, my alma mater, I went to Ohio State. They do that, too. Most Big Ten, most SEC schools, if they wanted to, you know, LSU has recently decided they don't want to, but if they wanted to, most of them could. But if you're in the MAC, if you're Kent State, for example, you're not. Kent State is paying most of Kent State's football budget. Kent State football is not self-sustaining. That 
can become a challenge because what if Kent State University doesn't have as much money as it used to? And I think even assuming that football and everything goes back to normal in the fall, I think that's a safe assumption because if your schools, if your campus is closed, you're presumably not getting as much money from room and board uh, and dining plans as you were before. You're probably not going to get that same level of enrollment when things come back. Now that people are going online and may not necessarily want or have the money to go back into school. You're going to, um, if you're if you're getting money from state support and every state's tax revenues are going to be going down because half the economy is in shambles right now, there's not going to be as much money for Kent State. There's not going to be as much money for Oklahoma State or, or, or uh, you know, re- regional universities in California. And so then if your university budget is now down 15% and, and for some Mac schools, that's happening now. Does justifying all of the institutional support for athletics appear as justifiable? Like now it's not just I'm losing 300 grand from the NCAA. I might be losing 300 grand and also $6 million from the school and also some student fees. Add all that up, sooner or later it becomes real money. So you mentioned Kent State and I spot a perfect opportunity to ask you another question about this. They have a game at Penn State in September. You know, let's talk. We're getting to the football season. Let's say we move a few months ahead. Sure. Um, a school like Kent State obviously needs that game because they need that guarantee. And I'm not sure um, what they're getting paid by Penn State for that game this year. I would guess it's somewhere between 500 and you know a million, maybe a million two. No, I know um, the, go- the going rate for these games now is 1.4 to 1.8. It's rising. If that, yeah, yeah F- rising. And, and F- yeah. FBS body bag games are, are yeah. easily over a million now. So over a million dollars that Kent State, let's pretend that the situation stays dire. And obviously there's a lot that we don't know. Um, you know, I think that the lag in testing in the United States means that we're, we're really not entirely sure what things are going to be like in a few months. And we don't know how this is going to go. But let's say that things are in a rough state in September. You can't play that game. or It's got to be delayed, canceled, etc. Kent State needs that $1.4 million. That's a huge percentage of a schools like Kent State's, you know, operating revenue for a year. Um, Penn State, though, is one that really interests me, you know, on the other side of that game, you know, Penn State's athletic director, Sandy Barber, has said several times in the past that they need five non-conference home games every two years uh, in football to make sure that they can fund everything else. Uh, I'm curious who you see taking the brunt of a football cancellation or a football disruption of service. Um, a school on the Penn State end of the spectrum, which or a Florida end of the spectrum that uses football games, not just the TV money, but also the gate uh, to finance everything else in its, in its athletic department. Uh, or if you think that it'll pose an even bigger problem for these schools on the lower end of D1 who might be collecting paychecks to get body backed. I think there's no question that the exposure is way worse for the Kent States of the world, right? You know, <clears throat> if, if Kent State's total athletic budget, I'm looking at USA Today now, if it's $28 million and only about loss. if only about five and a half of that, five and a half million dollars is something is self self-sustained revenue from your from ESPN, from ticket sales, from your licensing. Yeah, losing 1.5, uh, even if you just have to postpone it, is a huge deal. Penn State football, I think, it would be an example of an institution that might be too big to fail. Um and like I, I wanna real quick, let me yeah, hop in please. here. Like Kent State's Kent State's total operating budget for athletics is twenty eight million dollars, right? Yep, that's what USA Today says. Matt, would you scroll up and tell me what Texas A and M is? Sure, about two hundred. I'm guessing two hundred. Richard, you have an over under. Uh, I I will I will go to ten under. Let's scroll, friends. It is according to the USA Today database two twelve. Oh, right. Okay, I say that, Richard. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Yeah, that, that, I, I'm, I'm sorry. That's revenue. Expenses is one sixty five. So. Uh, the Aggies are rich, as I'm told. Uh, they'd like to remind you. Yeah, the Aggies like the Aggies budget 28 for just football, and I, th- that's a joke. Like that's when we talk haves and have-nots. When we talk about the separation here, like that's the amount of money that we're talking about between the SECs of the world and just the max. We're not talking about D2. We're not even talking about D3. We're talking about the max. Go ahead. Um, You're right. And that kind of makes this the, the conversation about the other schools in D1 even more dramatic because Kent State's $28 million. They're still D1. We've got schools who are D1 participating in the NCAA tournament where that budget is five, where that budget is six, where that body bag game with Kent State, that's like all of the money that Mississippi Valley State Athletics like generates revenue-wise. Like the, the gap in D1 is simply enormous. 
So I think if Penn State Athletics was running into a severe fiscal crisis, I think that there would be people in, 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 Penn, in Pennsylvania's government. I think there would be businesses in State College. I think there would be other people who would be willing to, to step up to keep that institution afloat, even if that meant that Penn State, I'm just you know, hypothetically here, didn't sponsor volleyball anymore. Or, or Penn State, you know, didn't sponsor a track team for for a little bit, which even some Big Ten teams have done. Nobody's bailing out Kent State. No, there's no Ohio politicians that give a, a crap, give a crap at all about Kent State football. And so if if they were like, hey, we need four million dollars or we're disappearing, th- that check's not coming. And I think that that's true for other FBS institutions. So when a school like Kent State, you know, a school that has a thirty-ish million dollar, you know, revenue uh, outlook across its entire athletic department faces this kind of trouble, what do you see being thrown overboard? And I'm not asking, you know, which Kent, do we think Kent State swimming and diving? I don't know if they have a swimming and diving team. I'm not asking for specific sports and specific schools, but how do you see these, you know, very exposed smaller athletic departments responding to the loss of potentially, um, you know, some football guarantees, potentially uh, their football TV money, though, you know, we don't know what the insurance situation is in, in the case of football broadcast agreements. Um, but if it's the Mac, you're probably not getting too much if you're not playing games. So what do you see those schools doing when they take these hits that are undoubtedly a significant portion of their revenue? So what I think has to happen is that these schools then have to have really honest conversations with themselves about what exactly do we really want to be getting out of our uh, Division One or FBS or conference affiliation and athletic program. Because if you are institutionally completely committed to like, no, we, we're definitely a max school. We're competing um, for students against Akron and competing for students against uh, Buffalo and Western Michigan. And it's important that we establish ourselves as peers. And we're going to be committed to spending our way through what we hope is a short-term lapse. I, th- I think you can do it. And you can do that by borrowing money. And hey, the interest rates are pretty low right now. And some of these schools still have decent credit ratings. And, and you might be able to do that. Or you might be able to cut corners in a couple of different ways, because even you know, I'm, I'm Kent State University's budget is probably in the 700 millions, if not more. Um, so if you the uni- not not just the athletic yeah, department, I'm talking, I'm talking about the university. university. Yeah, like I I remember re- uh, writing about this with Colorado State a couple of weeks ago, and their faculty is like, "Hey, we've doubled athletic spending, and we haven't gotten anything out of it. We hired Steve Adazio. What are we doing?" And their president's like, "That may be true." Our budget is a billion dollars. And so if we just <laughs> a billion with a B. So yes, maybe we're wasting 18 million more on athletics and maybe we shouldn't be, but that's not like going to break the university. Um, that's like the funny thing. It's funny when people are like, oh, I remember when the Ivy League was the first kind of to cancel the tournaments. I was like, look, man, if the Ivy League didn't like care about football or if they didn't feel like they kind of are obligated to do it, they wouldn't do it. I mean, like I've talked to some coaches in, in the Ivy League level and they're like, yeah, man, if the Ivy League ever really wanted to kick some money into this thing, we would be serious. Oh, yeah. At the FCS level. Like you, we, no one would be able to compete with us because of the amount of money. They have they have an enormous amount of money as institutions. In the endowments. And, and, and yeah. In the endowments and their alumni would, would want to kick stuff in. And then as, uh, on the recruiting trail, yeah, the value of a Princeton degree versus the value of, like, no disrespect, a Youngstown State degree, there's a pretty big difference. Like, yeah, but, but they, don't, they, don't, they don't need to. Um, so do you think, Matt, that, do you think that then the obstacle becomes political opposition to dipping into the coffers of the university to save athletics? Or do you think that, you know, these schools, you know, the Ivy is obviously its own beast, but... Do we think that some of these lower tier D one schools um, will just re, you know, ask their students to chip in more via student fee, or just take some money out of one pocket and put it into another? Um, because from the sounds of it, you know, that might be a way to forestall some athletic doom, and it just seems to be a question of whether or not you should. Yes, I, I think for most schools that is, I mean, that that's basically what's happening now. Like that's that's how this whole operation is being funded with schools deciding. It's worth it from a marketing perspective. It's worth it from a community engagement perspective to shuffle that money around and do this. And and for, and honestly, and I'm a I'm a critic of this enterprise for some schools. I think that's true. I think they probably do get a benefit. Probably not as many as think they do, but for some, you know, I think for Butler, for example, or for Gonzaga, it's it's clearly been been a big success for Florida Gulf Coast for a couple of years. It was clearly a success. You did this. Um 
you did this conversation in a way on um on the intercollegiates podcast that i was listening to that i thought was really interesting and like i it's funny that you brought up florida gulf coast because i was uh in college that year that they went on the run to you know the dunk city or whatever um look up who that dunk city team lost to in the tournament but um it's funny when you talk about the front porch of the university kind of i don't know if we want to call it a fallacy but at least the theory there um and and what really athletics plays into the university and how like as a university you may be willing to take a monetary loss on the athletic side because of what is happening to admissions when your teams are really good in in whatever prestige sports yeah i mean we can talk about this here real quick. So this this phenomenon, and you, you probably if you follow me at all, you've probably heard me talk about this before. It's called the Flutie effect. It's named after Doug Flutie. It's a documented uh, phenomenon that shows that when a prestige sport has much higher than anticipated or expected success, you usually see a bump in enrollment, in the quality of uh, applicant freshman applicants, and in alumni engagement and money. So when a mid-major makes a run to the Final Four, like a George Mason or Loyola Chicago, this happens. Um, it happens. It's happened with Clemson and Alabama football. I think on some level, Richard, uh, both of our alma maters have benefited from this on, on some level. Um, oh, you bet. You, you bet. bet. The, the problem is, and so like I think a lot of schools spend all of this money hoping to, to enjoy that uh, the the fruits of that kind of phenomenon. The problem is you can't all win, and most of you don't. And if you hit that and my, benchmark once, you usually don't do it again. And the other thing is when, when we talk about kind of our alma maters here, they did this 30 years ago. Yeah. Like Miami had this bump, but Miami had the bump in the 80s. Florida had the bump in the 80s and then obviously in the 90s. Um, you know, a lot of these the, the schools that we're talking about that have that are on the good end uh, of the Flutie effect aren't trying to pull off a Flutie effect in 2020. No, no. There's like, there's a couple, I think, in FBS. Florida State benefited from this. Penn State, Ohio State. Yeah, it was Did that, Boise State. Um, only a little bit. Like, you know, the, the, I'm trying that, to think that, of who the most recent in football, at least. I'm trying to think of who the most kind of football example would be. And maybe it is Boise State. I mean, maybe it's about to be UCF, even though UCF had an admissions boom kind of right before. Isn't this Richard, something, that, off, isn't this something that USF has hoped for? And they feel like they've been sort of inhibited by some facility yeah. shortcomings and things like that. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, you could talk about kind of they were. I think USF has benefited from it to an extent. Um, I think you, you know, in in ten years, maybe we can look at UCF and say, well, well, UCF definitely benefited. But then that may get a little murky because, like I was trying to say, like UCF from an admissions perspective exploded yeah. like a decade ago, yeah, and yeah. so it things are a little bit different. But yeah, I think probably in the most simplistic sense, yes, we can probably have that conversation. Y- yeah, and 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 this is. Honestly, like this kind of stuff determines so much of who's good at the sport, and it's all political. Like UCF's population explosion or enrollment explosion, and excuse me, their building explosion. A lot of that is because of political decisions that happened in Florida and what state let UCF. Uh, UCF stands for under construction forever. Right. It it, 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 ma- it matters from which state senators and state reps are willing to be boosters, you know, within the, the Florida political sphere for that school. It matters about what's happening with that city. Um, and you know, if you if you if you took all the coaching hires that they made and you picked up UCF and you plopped it in Bismarck, it's not the same thing because of these these other <laughs> you know demographic and financial and political and educational all things that 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 go on in the background. And so these schools in the MAC and the Sun Belt, the Mountain West, and FCS are making this bet, and a few of them are going to make it, and all, most of them are going to lose. And I think it is entirely possible that we look at this in a year and a half and everyone's financial assumptions have completely changed. It may be politically untenable to continue that conversation for some of them. I think the ones that are most at risk are probably some of the less capitalized HBCUs who may decide it's not worth our our pride. It's not worth our dignity or our association of our brand to be body bagged for half the basketball season and and to get blown out in the beginning of the NCAA tournament, maybe we should go back where there's already a lively D2 HBCU community and try to save some money that way. So as far as this pandemic goes, do you feel that the schools that will be most vulnerable to this, uh, athletically speaking, 
are those that do not have massive enrollments to continue to kind of uh, fill the coffers while this is going on? Like, should we expect to see some of the smaller school football success stories, perhaps at some point downstream, feel this more if enrollment lags? I think right right now, and there's so much we don't know because we don't know how long the pandemic is going to go. We don't know exactly what the NCAA or federal or state responses are going to look like. Right now, I think there are two groups of schools that are most vulnerable. A, pri- a smaller enrollment private school that does not have FBS football is going to be in, uh, at, you know, at, at higher risk. Um, so not Notre Dame is what you're not, saying. Not Notre Dame. Think uh, American University. Think, you know, Patriot League. Think uh, Sacred Heart. Think like NEC, America East, you know, some of those kind of schools. Or the uh, public institutions that are the worst, that have the, the least amount of capa- capitalization and have the smallest budgets. Your Bethune-Cookmans, your Chicago States, your teams in the WAC, uh, your, your teams at the bottom half of the MEAC, the, your Delaware States. These are schools that I think would, where any loss of income would be potentially problematic. And the longer this continues, the higher level, the risk exposure moves up the food chain. And what about, I feel like we've had this conversation sort of on two poles here. I asked you about the Penn States of the world, and we've talked about the HBCUs that struggle financially. What do you see the impact being on an Oregon state or a Washington state or a school that is clearly a power five school, but is at the bottom of that food chain financially? Sure. Some of that's going to depend on what happens with their enrollment and, and what happens with their, their state revenues. I mean, if I was a an Oklahoma state and, you know, in, in, a, in a place like Oklahoma where a lot of public revenue is dependent on one industry and that with oil and gas is really taking you on the chin or if you're in Vegas where so much of it depends on gaming and that's going to be an industry in some trouble right now, you may be in worse shape than somebody in a state that that is maybe not quite as exposed. But I, I would imagine there's going to be some impetus for budget cutting at a lot of schools. Uh, and some of that might include some power five conference uh, you know, kind of teams. Like, I don't think, do I think like, do I think Oregon State's going to drop football or basketball? No. Do I think it is possible that even some power five programs drop some sports or drop some of their, their lay off some staff or, or cut spending in, in, in some significant ways? Yeah, I do think that's possible. I don't think anyone's going to ask Ryan Day to take a pay cut. Um, but I, I think that, there aren't aren't many schools that I don't I think will be not impacted in any way. I I'm glad you kind of brought up Oklahoma State because Oklahoma State for me is really interesting in that its highest uh, you know biggest money booster just recently passed away, and I my question is what happened my question with college sports in general college football in general I should say. Um, is kind of on a 30,000 foot level what happens to the sport when all the sugar daddies die. And now I think we're going to get a little bit of that in the future, hopefully not, but the reality of our economic situation right now is we may be heading right into a recession if you've paid attention to the markets. So I guess we may see it on like a minor level what happens when we go into a recession that maybe we didn't think we were going to get right now in 2020. Like what happens to college sports then? Yeah, that's, that's it's a fascinating question. It's, it's one I've, I've kind of brought up a couple of times, I think on extra points and you're right. Part of it is what's going to happen with some of these, these mega, you know, the owners, right? There's just been a couple of owners in college yeah, athletics and maybe we don't necessarily replace those, but you know, that's kind of the, the, the uncomfortable truth is that this sport relies on a lot of those 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 really wealthy people those are the ones who are buying the luxury box tickets those are the ones that become really regular boosters and changes to the tax code and what we're already seeing now is going to make that revenue stream much more uncertain i mean I, you can talk to athletic directors right now they're saying we cannot sell season tickets um it, it's not just because of the youths and the cell phones and Pat Fitzgerald or anything. It's we can't convince rich people to drop 10 G's on season tickets right now, partly because of the coronavirus fears and partly because now they're, they're just not going to be as liquid. Um, and if you've ever tried to buy season tickets at a school, it's donation, it's the seat license, and then it's the $300 for the seats for six home games. Yep. yep and yeah. And then you got to pay 12 bucks for a beer. Like they're going to, they're going to shake you down on, on every, on every possible level, you know, there's been a lot of, of thought leaders within this industry before this crisis that were saying this current trajectory of spending is not sustainable. And maybe we need federal intervention to help us solve that because we can't seem to do it ourselves. And I think it's going to be interesting as 
the NCAA leaders work with Congress over name, image, and likeness about whether they pursue an antitrust exemption that, that might limit coaching salaries or might limit administrator salaries or staff sizes. Because right now, that's very unconstitutional. But that might be something that they push for to keep to try to prevent schools from trying to keep up with the Jones when they definitely can't. So what I with name, image, and likeness, do the schools I, – I guess if you keep it third party, then I, I guess the schools don't really have a, a, an argument or leg to stand on here. But do you see the schools potentially trying to finesse and say name, image, and likeness because of our financial state right now may become even more untenable? And by schools, I mean the NCAA. But the NCAA may be saying like that is more untenable now because of the – you know, the the economic climate, um, obviously the counter to that is it would be third parties paying them anyway. But let's let's just try to prognosticate yeah. what we think the NCAA Because some schools say. have tried to make the argument that somehow this would cost them money. And it is nonsense. It does not follow to me. But they have there have been a few administrators who have tried to make the let's, argument that that would somehow hurt. Yeah, them. let's yeah. let's play within that sandbox. Sure. I, sure, it's possible. Like what my understanding right now you know, on Wednesday, March 18th, year of our Lord 2020, is that we have a broad bipartisan consensus that this current system is pretty screwed up. But I don't think we have a broad bipartisan um, system of of true believers in, in Congress where they see this as a human rights or a civil rights issue and not a issue of, of charity or just recalibrating the levers a little bit. Or an easy political an win. An easy political win. Because it is. Yeah. So... Certainly, I would imagine athletic directors and university presidents, if they go back to the Hill in five months, will try to plead poverty or, or try to plead and ask for more time. So like, listen, this is an unprecedented applicant upturning. And yes, we should have done this two years ago, but we can't possibly do it now. And here's all the, you know, like, yeah, that would be a very, a very simple argument to make. And I, I would be shocked if Embert or some of the more hardcore people don't try to do that. And I can, I can even see right now some of the congressional leaders being swayed by that. Like I could see Mitt Romney listening to that argument if Tom Holmo, you know, BYU's athletic director, or if um, I think Mark Harlan's the guy at Utah right now made that, I think he would be swayed. I think Marco Rubio would be swayed. I think some people who don't follow this as closely could potentially be swayed by that. Sure. And part of this argument for anyone who uh, is blessed enough to not be um, following it so closely is that there are some administrators <laughs> who, who have posited that uh, if a business is suddenly able to advertise with a student athlete, uh, their term, uh, then they might spend money there that they otherwise would have spent uh, advertising or giving to the institution itself. And, you know, some would say that, you know, of, of course, you know, everyone lives on a budget. Others would say that's absurd. You can guess uh, where I fall on that. But, you know, I, I do really wonder if it's an opportunity to muck things up. And, and, and it wouldn't surprise me if, if, it, if it took that path. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I was talking to a couple of sports business professors and a couple of them were saying like, hey, we, we think that this might lead to name, image, and likeness progressing very quickly. And some were saying this might be a, a big holdup. And I know that that Gene Smith at Ohio State is trying to continue the momentum of, of those discussions right now. But there's so many campus level issues that are really urgent that need to be worked out right now. Um, getting players home safely, figuring out where they're going to be living, figuring out what they're getting the right medical care. Like that's priority one. Priority two for a lot of these schools is figuring out what the hell we're going to do with spring eligibility. Since I think there's a broad consensus that uh, we schools want to find a way to bring, uh, you know, athletes who just missed their baseball season back on campus. Now we got to figure out scholarship limits. You know, there, other things have to come first before we yeah. get to NIL. I want to ask you about scholarship limits. This is maybe the most the most confusing uh, <laughs> game to play about what, Go, what well, schools are going to do about this. Take the hypothetical of, of one sport. Sure. Uh, let's take baseball for for a great example. Uh, the baseball season cut short, uh, you know, a couple weeks after it had gotten started. Uh, you know, of course, we're all familiar at this point that the NCAA, like Matt just said, wants to uh, – that a lot of people within the, within the NCAA, and it seems there is momentum for this nationally, want to give those players uh, a year back on the eligibility clock – uh, I don't have in front of me what the exact uh, scholarship limit is in baseball. I know it's partial 11, scholarships. 
and 11.7, and I believe those are partial or allowed, so they can be split up among the entire roster. Yep. Uh, what happens when you've got, uh, you know, uh, you've got a head coach who needs to recruit a bunch of freshmen to replenish his program, uh, and he has a bunch of seniors who, you know, want to come back, and many of whom might not quite be uh, good enough or, or for some reason not ready um, to try to play professional ball. What happens? Um, I, I'm wondering if we're going to have a case where a lot of cases where a coach has to tell a senior who has bled for him for four or even five years, sorry, I can't keep you here, or at least I can't put you on scholarship. You're going to have to pay your own way. Uh, I'm curious. Do you see that happening? Do you see a grace period on scholarship limits? What do you see being the, the dynamic? Well, there's there's a lot of different proposals happening on this right now. And I, I think there is, from my understanding, a, a relatively broad agreement that we want to be able to help as many people as we can come back, right? It may mean that, yeah, for one year, you can go over the salary cap to re-sign your own seniors. Um, that may be a budget crunch for some of the smaller schools. I mean – at least they say they are like the true cost of, of athletic scholarships is, is kind of a gray area here, but you know, the, 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 the teams in the America East might complain about that a little bit more. And the teams in the SEC would be like, fine, Vanderbilt puts everybody on scholarship anyway. Like what's the big deal? Um, then you have the question of, do you only go over the cap to sign your own seniors? Can you go over the cap to sign other people's seniors? Can you go after senior graduate transfers and come back and then everybody go join LSU's pitching staff? That that I don't know, and we're and we're laughing, but like that's those are things that are being discussed in baseball, and there's somewhat similar arguments happening for other sports. It's this is what makes me think extending this to college basketball is pretty unlikely. But this is the kind of I stuff was going to ask. Yeah, yeah. This is the kind I was going to stuff- ask you about football. I mean, imagine. Let's pretend, and we we hope that this is not the case. We hope that we flatten the curve, and this all improves in time for football season to be played. Let's say that it doesn't. Let's say that things are bad. Uh, let's say that the more uh, apocalyptic scenarios about this virus spread play out and the football season doesn't happen. I can't, there is no way that I can imagine everyone agreeing what to do about the 85 scholarship cap uh, in football. I'm I not, mean, yeah, I'm not sure that there are, I mean, there's, there's definitely FBS schools that are going to say we cannot afford to have 125 people on scholarship. And there are going to be others who say, well, well, Alabama had more seniors than us, and, and we're not going to let them have 97 scholarships while we only have 88 this year. Yeah, like the, the, the ability for football to have any kind of like shared sport-wide agreement on any of this stuff, given how paranoid everyone is about competitive advantages, would make it very, very difficult. I, I will just say this. Here in mid-March, I think if we get to the point where we're missing a football season – there's going we to got be bigger fish to fry. Yeah, man. baby. There's there's going to be some bigger. <laughs> I I think the big college football conversation then is going to be about liquidity rather than scholarships. So like we'll we'll figure that out a little bit later. We we can have that in October's PAPN. But and I have no idea. I mean, we talked at the top about the insurance policy for March Madness and what that brings back. I have no idea what, for instance, the Big Ten gets if it can't put football games on ESPN this year. I got no those. Idea. I got those. Floyd was out. But uh, one thing I have learned, unfortunately, is that when uh, only essential government employees are working, the FOIA clerk, <laughs> the FOIA department the ain't, FOIA clerk ain't there. So, I, I mean, I, I, I've, got, I've got 20 FOIAs out right now trying to look at some of these contracts to figure out what happens to guarantees if, if people aren't being played, if those games aren't being played, what are the insurance policies that schools have to put out there to host NCAA events, trying to get that fine print. Listen, I know I got some athletic directors to listen to the show. My email is matt.brown at sbnation.com. <laughs> uh, if your FOIA guy isn't home and you want to leak me some stuff, you know, you hit me up there or at mattbrownep on Twitter. I, I'd love to know. I'm, My man. I'm curious, Matt, do you see any, uh, you know, it's not going to be good and, and this is going to affect pretty much every sector of the economy, uh, of course, including our own. I'm curious if you, th- you know, what you make of, uh, what the conferences with their own TV channels are going to do about this, both from a business standpoint, where you kind of have these channels exclusively uh, to have an outlet for live sports. Um, and if you think that those are going to become kind of anchors for them financially, I mean, obviously we're going to get a lot of reruns of like, you know, the BTN is going to be, you know, every every team's best 10 games since 1990 or whatever. The SEC network's but, already doing yeah, that. Yeah, like, man. Doing, we're yeah. we're, we're going to get so much of Big Ten legend 1995 Nebraska on BTN right now. It's going to be great. No, like, it, it's interesting. I, I don't know if 
their core financial situation changes that much. Like those are cash cows for everybody but the Pac-12. And yeah. without really anything else to watch right now, I think people are still going to watch those a little bit. And they're in the same boat that we are, right? Like they're figuring out what to talk about. And here at SB Nation, we get to do this. And we also get to, you know, find ways to play Sega Genesis games online and have people talk about that. And, you know, if this keeps going, yeah, we're going to see Mike Hall on Big Ten Network playing the Sega. Like the, the, we're all going to have to to figure stuff out. But the, the the big leagues that were making big money from those networks, I don't think that's going to disappear. But if you're the Pac-12 and your network isn't making very much money and isn't being distributed. Competitive advantage, baby. Pac-12 catching up. It's not going to help. Yeah, I know. They're going to pivot to esports. USC is back. So, Matt, what do you – I mean, on the topic of the these big conferences uh, and the Pac-12, but mostly the big conferences. Um, <laughs> and the, the Pac-12. <laughs> I'm the curious. Power four in the Pac-12. Listen, listen, if there's one thing um, I've learned about being in BYU Twitter, it's that Utah is in a power conference. I've, I've heard this. I've heard yeah. this. Working to confirm. Many people are um, One serious question that I do wonder about – uh, given that college football is what pays the bills in so many ways. I mean, we've talked about how March Madness is big, but not the big thing um, for these big schools. Uh, in the event that things remain grim into the summer and, and it gets to be August, uh, you know, even late July, uh, do we think that we trust SEC, Big Ten athletic directors, conference presidents to look at this soberly? Or should we be concerned frankly, that college football uh, will go on no matter what and become a public health risk. Well, I'm not sure that they're going to, that they're necessarily going to be able to do that because they may be overruled by their own governors or the sure. president or, or other political figures. And we, we kind of already saw that, right? Like the, <clears throat> the, the leading figure to push the NCAA wasn't the NCAA. It was Mike DeWine in, in Ohio, which I got to tell you as, as an Ohio native and Big surprise. Was, was not a, <laughs> Ohio has been a Ohio has been a national leader on this. Which you know, is, I, I'm, hey, great. Go I know. Ohio. I'm I'm, I'm yeah. glad. I'm glad. To, I'm glad. But loved loved. Oh, Love to see it. You love to, you love to see our Ohio politicians that we know and love stepping up. But part of why I ask is that I, I mean I think I saw somewhere that at least it is rumored that Trump wanted NFL owners to not cancel the season. I mean, there might be a point. There might be a point where politicians uh, looking for some kind of you know we're handling this well when I wonder if they'll be like, yeah, we, we need college football. Like is, is Brian Kemp and Georgia going to be like, no dogs, you can't play. I, I mean, yeah, I like that. Maybe, the, but yeah, depending on how things go this summer, if we're all freaking cooped up in our houses for five months, are, are we really, really going to be jonesing for football? Even if we have to play in empty stadiums? Sure. I definitely yes. think there's going to be political movement for that. If for nothing else as a economic stimulus. And if there's a way to do that safely, if that means we're, we're not playing in these enormous SEC cathedrals and we're, we're making, you know, we, we, we send everybody to Shreveport and just play in the independence bowl or something like maybe I'm kidding, but like, maybe that's, that, that that's something that, that, that might happen. And there, that's not just a question of leadership within the conference. It's a question of local political leadership. So what, what I'm saying is, yeah, I, I will say, I will say ESPN at all would like nothing more than for you to be on your ass for 15 Saturdays this fall. Yes. Without able to be, be without being able to go outside. I mean, it's something that obviously it would be very good economically for some people, including us, no doubt. Um, but man, I, I just have, uh, I, I gotta be honest, some fear about, you know, if the experts are saying, eh, this is pretty, even if it's like pretty borderline and the experts are like, we think we're doing okay by this point, but we're not quite there. Um, man, there are going to be a lot of people in college athletics who are looking for anything that sounds like permission, I feel like, to get back out there, and, and we'll see what they do. Yeah, potentially. I have a lot of criticism of the college athletic system right now. I would like to think that this is not a death cult and that people are going to, especially given that a lot of these decision makers, <laughs> these are old, man. Like the, these, the, the conference commissioners, there's not a whole lot of people who are in their 30s. Um, so it, it, maybe that's part of it. I, I, for me, it's, it's, it's hard to even really, really wrap my head around what things are going to look like in August because there's so many unknowns. It's going to yeah, be weird absolutely. having to depend on the political instincts of Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville to like guide policy here, but like that's that's a world we might have to live in, and Good we, we just hope people do the right thing. That, uh, we're, that not gonna, we're not going to be okay. We're not that Tuberville runoff has been uh, delayed. Oh. I think I read because of all until the stuff. July. Until, like, so, until July, we don't yeah. know. It, uh, uh, but I, I do like with football. I and yeah, I know we'll cross this bridge when we come to it, but. 
football, you know, the ratings and, and the advertisement dollars and even attendance are going to further, I think, be inhibited by the fact of we're going to have to jam all the sport. Like the Kentucky Derby is going to be on week one. The Masters is going to be in October if we track with what it looks like could be okay if we get out on the other end of this in like July, you know, looking good. You're going to have a lot of competition on these fall weekends that aren't otherwise there. You know, this this might have all been worth it if they put Auburn, Georgia up against the Masters. I mean, wow. <laughs> an, yeah, an, you want an empty stadium, Auburn, Georgia, buddy. You got it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I like we, we will cross that bridge when we come to it. But I, I think football has some things that I think are easy to kind of hypothesize about and kind of like – play armchair athletic director because I think football is kind of so far off that it's I think all of us at least myself like I kind of have this hope against hope that like hey like we'll have this figured out to where some of these discussions do not become a reality because like I said if we get to August and we're still dealing with this thing at the level we're dealing with it right now we got bigger fish to fry than than just football it's it's a it's a deal um, it's really a deal. Matt Brown, I know you got kids hassling you, um, and you might need to get out of here. Where can the people find you if they want to look for all of the, the musings and the rantings and the ravings about college you, sports? Yeah, you bet. I, I think literally the, the barricades are breaking right now in my office, and there's there's two ordinary uh, kids trying to come in to demand a the wa- barbarians are to the watch gates. Paw Patrol. Yeah. So um, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, I write a twice-a-week newsletter called Extra Points, which covers all of the off-the-field issues that impact – what you see on the field. So you can find that at mattbrown.substack.com. Um, most people seem to like it okay. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at mattbrownep and across various SB Nation properties. And I really do strongly recommend that newsletter. It's it's a great one to get. Um, also subscribe, of course, to the read option. Our, Naturally. You know, three, three, five times a week at Banner Society. Um, but Matt's as well is, is an essential read for me. There, there may recommend. only be one college football podcast, but there are two college football newsletters. Absolutely. People forget that. <laughs> Alex, where can the people find you? People can find me on Twitter at Alex underscore Kirshner uh, and on BannerSociety.com. I am, as always, at RJ underscore rights. Uh, guys, be, to be honest with you, keep safe out here. Try to stay sane in the house. Um, I know a lot of you guys have kids and and all that kind of stuff and and the walls are closing in i only have a uh very very spacious new york apartment uh to keep me company um but it's uh it's trying times and i don't say that in kind of the joking way um this is something that obviously nobody thought could really happen um in a sense of a reality situation those of us who are not medical professionals those of us who just kind of go about our days um thinking about college football and and just like last week and and hopefully for as many weeks as we need to do this um we hope this little podcast kind of gives you an hour off um thinking about the world even though for the last hour we did really talk about some pretty serious uh after effects of what's happening within the world um but as always thanks for hanging with us and uh we'll be back